And at this particular point, I'd like to welcome most warmly those who are watching us on internet right now, who are live streaming, and also those who are watching it after the event, because everything that uh, we put out on the internet is also there available for you to download free of charge, not just watch the live stream. But we welcome you also over the road in the Coronet Cinema and uh, in, continue to enjoy the uh, fellowship over there in the Coronet and as we link now for the message which is just about to happen. Many of you, of course, will know that Dr. R.T. Kendall and his wife Louise are spending a number of months with us right the way through to the summer and uh, they're based in London, based in Kensington Temple and are officially for a period of time resident with us uh, in the ministry. So welcome Dr. R.T. Kendall to the pastoral team of Kensington Temple. Who would have thought the day would come? Amen and amen. Come and minister to us. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. I have to pinch myself, Louise and I do, that we're here as residents for a while. We spent 25 years in London, and uh, it was hard to leave, uh, but we eventually thought we should retire. But I always said I got London back because Colin invites us here uh, once a year. And, uh, but then when we were here last, he put a suggestion. And at first I didn't take it too seriously. I wasn't sure how deeply he meant it. But why don't you come over and live a few months? And so here we are. And we're thrilled. And uh, so I'll be speaking here um, a couple times a month and other places. Uh, but uh, we're grateful to be with Colin, Amanda, Louise and I. Uh, love Kensington Temple, we love London, we love England, and uh, as I say, I just have to pinch myself uh, that I'm here. Anyway, it's our first time. I'm just looking around to see if I know anybody. Uh, my GP, well, he, he was kind of mine, uh, uh, Dr. Naomi Soisa. Uh, he was a deacon at Westminster Chapel, and, uh, and his wife, uh, they've been close friends. And I see other, I better not, I see now other faces I know, so I better stop, uh, or I'll, I'll, I'll leave somebody out. Anyway, when I was here last, I don't expect you to remember this. Uh, if you did hear me when I was here before, you would want me to bring you up to date, because what I'm going to do today you could call a spin-off from a sermon I gave here uh, last May 30th. I believe that was the date. And uh, on that occasion, I preached a sermon from the 25th chapter of Matthew. And it's based upon the first uh, uh, 10, 11 verses of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. When Jesus describes the condition of the church generally during the last era of church history. In other words, when we come to the final generation before the second coming, that's what you have in Matthew 25. 
And I interpreted the five wise virgins to be like those Christians who pursue their inheritance. Every Christian is called to pursue and enter into their inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who do are called by Jesus wise virgins. Those who don't are called foolish virgins. And then the passage says that in the middle of the night, now most translations say midnight. The problem with uh, midnight is that it gives the impression that it means 12 o'clock midnight. That's when Jesus comes. And for many years as I grew up, I assume that was the meaning, that 12 o'clock symbolizes the end of history as we know it, and I remember hearing a sermon as a little boy that it's five minutes to 12, meaning that we're very near the end of the second coming. That is misleading because the Greek word is not a word that's translated midnight, it's two words that means middle of the night. So what Jesus is saying is that in the last generation, the church will be asleep. And even the wise virgins, those who symbolize, those who are pursuing their inheritance, they were also asleep. Now, the parable of the ten virgins is based upon an ancient oriental wedding in the Middle East. Uh, not like our weddings, Jesus' hearers would have known uh, the background. We don't quite get it because we don't know what a Middle Eastern wedding was like 2,000 years ago. It was altogether different from our weddings. Uh, first of all, it would last seven days. Uh, second, the weddings were not held in a church or a synagogue or a registry office. The way it was done is that the bridegroom would come to the house of the bride, get her, and take her back to his home. And that was the way it was done. The interesting thing was, strange as it is for us to believe, he would sometimes get her in the middle of the night. And during this festive period, she never knew exactly when he would come. Now, the bride would have young ladies attending her, and they would have lamps. Uh, and the reason for the lamps, uh, with oil, because that's the way they uh, illuminated a lamp in those days, was that he could come at night. And so they had to have their lamps burning, or uh, they would be unable to know he's coming, and they wouldn't recognize him. So they had to have their lamps trimmed with oil. Well, the wise had oil. The foolish did not have oil. And Jesus said that what will happen is that before the second coming of Jesus. Now, this is the interesting thing. Many people have thought, and I did for years, that at midnight or middle of the night, Jesus comes. That would miss the meaning. What Jesus is saying is that there would be a great awakening of the church just before the second coming. Because the coming of the bridegroom is not the same thing as the second coming. 
What Jesus is describing is a wedding banquet that precedes the actual second coming. Now, the problem was that if the church was asleep, uh, they uh, could, could miss it, but the wise, by having oil, at least uh, had illumination. And what happened was, in this parable, is that in the middle of the night, the cry came, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Then everybody was awakened. The foolish didn't have oil, and they missed out on the wedding banquet. Now let me ask you a question. How would you like to be right in the middle of the next great move of God, and that being a movement of the Holy Spirit that will surpass anything that has happened in the, Christi, uh, in the uh, history of the Christian church. And I'm sure all of you want to be right in the middle of it. The difficulty is the foolish virgins will not get to be in it. The wise will, but even they were asleep. Now, the interesting thing, it's, it's a little bit sobering when you think about it. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And second, you dream and do things in your sleep you wouldn't do if you were awake. And so Jesus said that in the last generation of the church, wise and foolish would be asleep. And so even if you are a wise virgin and you are pursuing your inheritance, according to Jesus, you're asleep. According to Jesus, I'm asleep. So I'm not up here on a pedestal saying, well, I'm the only one awake. I want you to know that I'm convinced that when this wake-up call comes that will awaken the church, I myself will see how deep in sleep I was. Because Jesus said, this great next move of God will come in the middle of the night. That's a metaphor. It could happen in daylight, but the idea is that we would all be in a deep, deep sleep. But I'm sure that the wise virgins will welcome this and say, I need to be awakened. I have been asleep. The foolish virgins will miss out it entirely. Now, what I've just done is to give you just a, a, a tiny bit of the sermon I preached when I was here last, for those of you that were here and those who weren't. Now, the reason I give that is that it's a little bit of background information because the sermon I want to preach today uh, would make more sense to you by knowing what I've just shared with you. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, the end of chapter 34, and I'll read, starting at verse 1 of chapter 35. But I think I want to start out, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. 
But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now we're going to chapter 35. It starts out with the word then. This is a rather significant word in this translation. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So, They gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present and those who could be watching this or hearing this at a later date that their perception of what I say will be received, grasped, understood, applied, as you intend. And may the blood of Jesus be applied to my tongue, that I'll be cleansed, that I will say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Grant me to be simple, clear, leaving no doubt as to the meaning of what we're trying to convey. May it be a word that is pivotal, life-changing, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This account from the life of Jacob uh, shows how a true child of God can sink pretty low when it comes to being grateful, uh, being wide awake, being alert, pleasing the Lord, because here's what we have. In the 34th chapter of Genesis is the account of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. We don't often realize or remember that Jacob had a daughter. We know about his 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, but he had a daughter. And uh, we're told that when she uh, became perhaps a teenager, early 20s, we don't know exactly when, she decided she wanted to see the world for herself. It's like those who want to go to London and see the bright lights. And she now goes into this area, and at some stage, there was a Shechemite who took her, seized her, and apparently raped her and dishonored her. Then he wanted to marry her. And... They had to come to the sons of Jacob to get permission 
to marry her. Well, these sons did something very clever. They were so angry with what they had done. They violated their sister, Jacob's daughter, and they did not show their anger. And in order to get permission, they said, well, now here's what we will do. They wanted, actually, the Shechemites wanted to be one with the Israelites. We'll all be one big family. Well, said the sons of Jacob, if all your men, all your male children will be circumcised, we'll do it. And we'll all be one big family. Well, they got together and said, done. And so all the males were circumcised. But the greatest pain after circumcision is after the third day. And the sons of Jacob waited till the third day. And at the moment that the Shechemites were in the greatest pain, they attacked them, killed them, and took all their possessions and their earrings, their gold, their gods, and left them with nothing. And you would have thought that Jacob would be proud of them. After all, they wanted to restore the honor to Dinah. But it turns out that Jacob, instead of saying, well done for what you've done, said, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. And so he rebuked them categorically for what they had done. All right, what is the purpose of my talk today? What is the reason you should listen to me? We have an account here that shows what happens when the people of God are awake and receive a wake-up call and respond affirmatively to it, and how God can make something extraordinary happen in a short period of time. Now, when I was here before, I compared the wake-up call that is described in Matthew 25 to what happened on the 11th of September, 2001. Most of you can remember where you were on the 11th of September, 2001, when the two airplanes ran into the building on purpose, the two buildings in New York City, and that word was known within hours all over the world. There was hardly a human being that did not know about this. And what I'm saying, that there is going to be an equivalent. It'll be a wake-up call like you've never heard of in your life. It will result in an awakening to surpass anything that has preceded uh, previous awakenings in the history of the Christian church. Now, in this account in Genesis 34, 35, we find Jacob at one of the lowest points in his life. And something had gone wrong. His sons now had drifted away from the way they were brought up. Uh, things aren't happening for Jacob as he thought they would. 
his daughter Dinah gets into all this trouble and Jacob feels there's nothing to live for. And his response to his sons is the equivalent of the way the church is today, speaking generally, asleep. And if I am to understand this scripture, as I said, all of us in this room are asleep spiritually. And we don't know we were asleep until we wake up. Now, what happens to a person in this spiritual condition? Well, in the case of Jacob, first of all, he could only focus on himself. People that are asleep spiritually become very self-centered. And here's what happened. When Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you thought he would say, thank you for what you've done. I'm so proud of you. He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench. And so, instead of being happy for them, he's full of self-pity. And by the way, if you're filled with self-pity at the moment, that is where the devil wants you. He loves it when you're feeling sorry for yourself. Because when we're full of self-pity, it's always self-justifying. And also means that we become unteachable. When you're full of self-pity, people can't tell you a thing. Uh, you say, you don't know what I'm going through. But that is not a good sign. It's not a degree of spirituality that has produced that. It's a lack of spirituality. It's because you are asleep. Another thing, Jacob was so unthankful. He should have been so grateful. This would be a chance for him to affirm his sons and say, well done, you. But instead, he was unthankful, and he says, all you've done is made it impossible for me to live. We've got nothing to live for now. Do you realize that God hates ingratitude? In fact, here are three principles. Principle number one, God loves gratitude. Principle number two, God hates ingratitude. Principle number three, gratitude must be taught. And we need to remind ourselves to be thankful. But I'll tell you another thing about gratitude. This is the basic understanding in the New Testament of the doctrine of sanctification. You see, every Christian, as I said, is called to enter into his or her inheritance. And this means living a life of holiness, of sanctification. But sanctification is not what gets you to heaven. There are those who say, the only way to know that you will go to heaven is because you're living a holy life. And if you're not living a sanctified life, you will go to hell when you die. And they think that is what gets you to heaven. Oh, by the way, let me ask this before I go any further. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? If you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, don't anybody give the answer out loud. I'm just asking each one of you to imagine now. You are standing before God. It's the real thing. 
And he says, why should I let you in? And you have to answer, and there's only one answer. Only one answer will do. Give the wrong answer, you have to go someplace else. You don't want to go there. So what would you say? And I want you to be as honest as you know how. What you would say to God. You've probably had long enough what comes to your mind, why you think you will go to heaven. I just want to say to you that if your answer is not because Jesus died for me on the cross. In other words, you think you get to heaven by how good you are, how faithful you are, what a nice person you are, maybe joining a church, maybe being baptized, whatever. If those are the thoughts that came to your mind, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. If it did not come to your mind immediately, I will go to heaven because Jesus died for me. I would not want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. I tell you now, I've got one hope. One. Jesus died for me. That's how I know. And if that did not come to your mind, as I said, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes, but we can sort that out right now. My sermon is not over. And normally this is what you say at the end of a sermon, but I'm going to say it now. If you gave the wrong answer, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Don't say it out loud. Just say it in your heart. You ready? Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. Thank you for dying on a cross for me. I welcome your Holy Spirit. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's the prayer. And if you prayed that prayer and not ashamed of it, I want you to know that's what gets you into heaven. But then people say, well, then why live a holy life if that's what saves you? It's like the P.S. at the end of a letter. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And so sanctification is basically the doctrine of gratitude. You say, thank you, Lord, and you prove it by a holy life. A life that brings honor and glory to God. And that is pursuing your inheritance. I'll tell you something you may not know. A group of psychologists in America came up with a conclusion based upon their research. You ready for this? Thankful people live longer. So if you want a long life, if they're right, be thankful. And tell God that. You see, God loves gratitude. And the reason I know he hates ingratitude, first of all, it's described in Romans 1 as one of the great sins. But not only that, when Jesus healed ten lepers in one stroke, how many do you suppose came back and said thank you? One. His immediate question was, where are the nine? God loves gratitude. He hates ingratitude. But that was Jacob. He was in this state of a deep sleep. He had sunk so low. He lost sense of gratitude. He was full of bitterness. You see, bitter people lack objectivity about themselves. That means you're able to see yourself truly as others see you. And you can stand apart from yourself and know what you're really like. But when you're holding a grudge, when there's unforgiveness, 
you're bitter. You're living for the day so-and-so gets caught, found out, gets what's coming to them. And you're living for that. That's bitterness. And I'm sorry, but that was Jacob. And worse than that, if it could be worse than that, here was a man now scared to death. You would have never thought it possible because not long before, Jacob had an amazing experience with God. It was when he was wrestling with God. And there God said, your name is no longer Jacob, but you are Israel. And it was a great moment. And Jacob probably thought, after this, I'll never doubt God again. After this, never again will I have a spiritual problem. But look what happened now. He had drifted. And I'm wondering if there's someone here. You know what it is to have had a great encounter with God. He was real to you. It was powerful. And it was so wonderful you'll say, never again will I doubt God. This is wonderful. But now something has happened. You've compromised. You've got too close to the world. You're like Lot. Abraham's nephew who pitched his, tent toward, pitched his tent toward Sodom and began to compromise on the very principles that bring honor to the glory of God. And you have compromised with sexual purity, with your use of money, and you're like these sons of Jacob, that they got the gold the earrings, the gods, the strange gods that they got when they raided the, the Shechemites and, and uh, to get even for what they did to Dinah, their sister and their father's only daughter. And now Jacob is living in fear. Do you know what it is to be motivated by a spirit of fear? It's a horrible thing. You're afraid all the time. And now here is Jacob saying, we are few in number. If all these people join forces against us, we're finished. We are destroyed. And that's what you men have done. Imagine living in such fear that everybody's going to attack you at any moment. And there are those here, perhaps, that's your problem. You're just living continual fret, anxiety. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear. 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And so you're wanting to punish, you're wanting to get even, and you're living in fear all the time. This was Jacob, and it's a sign that you are asleep. And if it could get worse than that, this is when Jacob had now unbelief that all the promises given to him would be fulfilled. See, initially it came to his grandfather, Abraham. God said to Abraham, count the stars, so will your seed be. Then it was renewed with Isaac. Look at the sand of the sea, so will your seed be. And then again with Jacob, when he came to the place called Bethel, where God met with him, and renewed the promise and said, your seed will be like the sand of the seashore. 
That's what Bethel meant to Jacob. It was so precious to him. But now the same Jacob is saying, we are finished. No chance could that promise be renewed. And maybe there are those here. God has witnessed to you. He's going to use you. He's got a plan for your life. What he has promised you will come to pass, but you're now saying, no, it's all over. It's not going to happen to me. Well, you might say, well, after Jacob had sunk so low, and this is the way he's living, uh, surely God would abandon him. Here's the most wonderful thing of all. Do you know, we are loved with an everlasting love. His mercies endure forever. David could say, surely goodness and mercy follow me. And so you could expect God to look down on Jacob and says, Jacob, I'm finished with you. You are an embarrassment to me. After I met you like I did at Bethel and I showed you how real I am and now you've compromised, you're ungrateful, your sons have done this thing and all you do is run them down. And so, sorry, Jacob, I can have nothing to do with you after you've done that. But no. Look at the very first word of Genesis 35, verse 1. It says, Then God said to Jacob. It was right at that moment when Jacob was at his worst. Have you ever been in a situation where your own spirituality was so low and you think, God could not love me now. God's not going to have anything to do with me now. He can never use me now. I've so messed up. I, I just must make God so upset with me. And God has a way when you are at your lowest point of getting your attention and the way he does it is to let you know he has not deserted you. And we're told, then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel, settle there and build an altar to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. At the moment, Jacob thought that God was just going to go at him and say, you're finished. I can't have anything to do with you. But the same God is never too late, never too early, but always just on time, came to Jacob and said, here's what you need. You need to go to Bethel. You see, Bethel symbolized the place where God met with him. And God was so real. And I wonder if there's someone here today, the message for you is go back to Bethel. Remember when God was so real to you? You remember what was going on in your life and how he manifested himself? And you've lost that. Maybe you're like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. You've left your first love. And Jesus says, go do your first works. Come back. He says to Jacob, go back to Bethel. And that is what God is saying to someone in this place. And so, here's what happened. He goes to his household and all that were with him. And Jacob says to his sons, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you 
and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let's go up to Bethel and there I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who's been with me wherever I have gone. And do you know the wonderful thing is the sons didn't argue back. They could have said, oh no, please, we've done all this. We've got their foreign gods. We can make money out of this. We've got their earrings. We've got their gold. And you're worried about our financial security. We've got it made. They could have argued back. And maybe God is saying to you right now, give up those household gods. Give up that lifestyle. Give up that which is only for carnal, fleshly pleasure. Give it up. And all that where you've abused your body and abused God's money. And God is saying, change your clothes. Purify yourselves. Because the reason he was told change their clothes because they had become so much like the world. They were wearing the very garments of these Shechemites, their earrings, and their false gods. They'd become so much like the world. And this is an example of a church that is asleep. They don't realize it. They've somehow lapsed into a sleep and they're dreaming and do things they would never do. And when they wake up, they'll say, I can't believe how I let myself do that and I'm so ashamed. And God is saying, go back to Bethel. Change your clothes. You are different from the world. You are not to look like the world. You are to be different. And a testimony before God and the world. Well, the wonderful thing is, God's people were awakened. And it did, they were awakened in such a way that it reminds me of Psalm 124. Listen to this. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Can you recall a time when you were doing something that was so horrible? God could have dropped you right on the spot and says, I have nothing to do with you now. Remember that worst moment. God could have said, you're not mine, I don't know you. But instead, God didn't step in. He didn't embarrass you. He didn't leave you. And you can say, we've escaped. The snare was broken. Escaped like a bird out of a fowler's snare because his mercy endures forever. And now, here is Jacob, so grateful to God, and his family are united, and they all together, they do away with the foreign gods. They give up all that they thought was going to give them financial security. They change their clothes. And then, are you ready for this? The very thing they were dreading, namely, that all those tribes around them would come and attack them and destroy them. Do you see what it says? 
They gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, rings in their ears. Instead of selling them and making money, they buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and listen to this, the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. This was their protection. The terror of God fell on them. And so Jacob and his sons could walk anywhere. And they didn't have any fear because God stepped in. Now listen, this is exactly what the cry will be like in the middle of the night. And I said at the beginning, the reason for this sermon is to show how deeply hurt a person can be, how they can stoop so low, how they can be backslidden and sound asleep and then be awakened because God loves his own. And these people awakened are just grateful to God that he gave them this wake-up call. And so in the middle of the night, says Jesus in this parable, they all awoke. The cry in the middle of the night, it rang out. The whole church was awakened. And if you wonder how this can happen, I want you to know that God is able to make this kind of thing happen so that when the church returns to Bethel, as it were, and this is what follows the cry in the middle of the night. What followed was the terror of God. Backslidden Jacob was scared to death that they would all attack him. And here we are in the church. We're full of fear, speaking generally, because the world has no respect for us. And therefore, you're afraid to let people know you're a Christian. Because they, they say, you're a Christian? <laughs> you crazy? <laughs> How could you do that? And we're looked at as stupid, dumb. We've got no intelligence. Because today, it is assumed that if you're a Christian, you just, you know, have a low IQ, not much education, something wrong with you. And so we live in fear to tell anybody. You see, that is all going to change in a short period of time. And what will happen is that the church, when it gets right with God, and so here comes the cry in the middle of the night. You say, but how is everybody going to hear this cry? How could it possibly happen? Well, now we know how it happened uh, when there was the wake-up call on September 11th, 2001. You could see it on television. So is that the way it's going to happen? Well, it could, but I've got a theory. I can't prove it, but you can think about it. Do you wonder how the fear of God could fall on the world as well as the church in a short period of time? Do you remember about a year ago in Egypt when one leader, Islamic leader, managed to get a million people in the square in Cairo. How did he do it? it? Wasn't TV. They weren't watching TV. Do you know how he did it? Do you know what that is? 
It's called a mobile phone. <laughs> we call them cell phones in America, smartphones, iPhone. Did you know that most people under the age of 25 don't have a computer? They don't need one anymore. This does it all. And through a message by one person, he rallied a million people, and they were in the square in one hour. This is how it's done. I am on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I don't have a, a large following. Uh, most people are on my Facebook, and I put a, a blog on. Um, a few hundred read it, sometimes eight or nine hundred. Only once, three or four months ago, I put a blog on, and to my amazement, 12,000 saw it in 24 hours. It's what they call when it goes viral. Something so gripping, they said, you've got to listen to this. And they just spread word. And in moments, dozens, then hundreds, then thousands. And I believe that what's going to happen to precede the next great move of God, God will use some message that will be so gripping. Now, here's the way it was in the parable. When the cry came, here comes the bridegroom. Nobody doubted it. They all believed it. And they all were awakened. But at the moment, if I, if I went on the, uh, Facebook today and I said, Jesus is coming soon, uh, I doubt they'd tell it to anybody. I don't think anybody believes that. But something's going to happen. That will be so convincing that everybody will believe it. Believe it so much that there will be an awakening such as we have not seen. Now, I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, what I believe. Don't want anybody to clap. Don't want any applause from this. If anything, you've heard it probably before. But I'm telling you, at hand, very soon is the greatest move of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost. It will eclipse the Welsh Revival, the Westland Revival, the Reformation, and all movements of the Spirit. And there will be an awakening where people will believe something that they never thought they could believe. But they'll believe it. And God will do it. It will be just as unpredictable as everybody being afraid of Jacob and his sons. And the church who are involved in it. They can't believe it because it's not them. Jacob could never, could never say, well, it's because I'm so good and I'm so holy. No, he was the most unworthy person. And if God uses any of us, but by the way, how would you like to be in the middle of the next great move of God when there will be people raised from the dead, healings like you've never heard, the power of the gospel preached in an unprecedented manner wouldn't you like to be right in the middle of it? It will come to those who are pursuing their inheritance because the wise get in on it and they're the ones that get to go into the banquet. And the banquet is symbolizing the greatest move of God in human history since Pentecost. I don't have time to go into all those details, but I can tell you this. This is the way God works. He uses the most unlikely people and he can do it in a short period of time. I was just reading the book of Esther a few days ago. Mordecai, a Jew, 
was at the king's gate. And a man by the name of Haman, Haman comes by, and everybody's supposed to stand and salute or genuflect. Mordecai just stayed where he was and took no notice. It incensed Haman so much that Haman did all he could to make sure that Mordecai was going to be hung. In a very short period of time, not only was Haman hung on the gallows that he'd prepared for Mordecai, but in a few days, every person in the kingdom were scared to death of Mordecai. It says, the fear of Mordecai gripped them. The fear of the Jews. How could this happen? Or take that account in the fifth chapter of Acts. When Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead when they lied to the Holy Spirit, I don't think anybody would want that to happen in Kensington Temple because if, if somebody were struck dead here, it would make the front page of the Times and you would say, this is, will finish us up as a reputation. Uh, we are finished. Oh, Lord, don't let anybody be struck dead. Do you know what? When this happened in the earliest church, we're told as a result... When the believers would meet in Solomon's colonnade, no one dared join them. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 11, because the Christians were so highly regarded. You see, at the moment, nobody respects the church. In America, the world can thumb their nose at the church, and the church doesn't seem to bother us. We ought to be outraged. We ought to think this is horrible. And you see what's going on in the world Compromise of the sanctity of marriage, sexual purity, use of your body, the way you use your money, your appetites, and we're all asleep and we hear all this going on. We say, yeah, it's really, really awful what's going on in the world. We go right back to sleep. And we think, can God people, can God use people like this? Here is the way it's going to be. When this cry comes, the whole church is awakened. And people were, are going to see that the second coming is as real as though it happened. And yet they know this is a true word. And this is almost, well, it's unthinkable, inconceivable. Nobody believes in the second coming, really? They laugh at it, like they do the virgin birth, or the resurrection of Jesus, or the Genesis account of creation, or the idea of heaven and hell. They laugh at it. John said, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, said, Behold, he comes with clouds, every eye shall see him. And when they see him then, do you know what John said? He said, They also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Wail. When's the last time you ever heard the sound of a wail? You might hear somebody sob, they cry. But when they wail, that means the pathos, the sound. When you know there's no hope, it's over. And when people see him in the skies, they'll say, oh God, oh, oh I'm, so, I'm sorry, have mercy on me. But it'll be too late then. But here's the good news. When this wake-up call comes, 
It's a wake-up call. It's not the thing. It's just saying that Jesus is coming. For the foolish, they won't get to enjoy it. The wise will be right in the middle of it. But it will be the time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and you're not only going to see mass conversions right here in Britain, but Islamic people converted by the tens of thousands, even into the millions. That is going to happen in our lifetime. And the result of that will be that Israel is going to be converted. Because the jealousy brought on by the fullness of the Gentiles will make Israel at last see it and the blindness on them will be lifted. And this will come prior to Jesus coming. It'll come first, the cry in the middle of the night, then the wake up of the church. Viral messages all over the world and the whole church, somehow it will happen that they will believe it as if it were real and already happened. And you're going to see a movement of God that you thought was absolutely not possible. The question is, would you like to be in the middle of it when the world respects the church at last? And would you welcome a wake-up call? So I would like to think this sermon is just a little mini, mini wake-up call. This is nothing. Some of you are believing it, some aren't. You? aren't. This is just a mini wake-up call. And it could be that God will use this at the moment. You're like a foolish virgin. But you can cross over now and be wise. But when the call comes in the middle of the night, the sad thing is that the foolish were not able to cross over and be wise. They just said, give us of your oil. The wise said, well, we just don't have enough ourselves. Oh, please, please. It's too late for them then, but it's not too late now. And God can use this to get your attention. My sermon's basically over, but I've got to pick up one point. Early on, about a half hour ago, I led you in a prayer. I said, if your hope of getting to heaven is your good works or trying to live a good life and all those things, but it didn't come to your mind to say, I trusted Jesus' blood, you say, well, now that you've told me, no, you didn't think it then. You see, that's the point. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It didn't come to your mind then. And then you prayed the prayer. My question is, if you prayed that prayer, are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Are you? You prayed that prayer. I know some of you do. You prayed that prayer. Are you ashamed? You say, why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you 15 seconds from now to stand to your feet. You say, in front of all these people? Yes, because it will show you're not ashamed of Jesus. And if you prayed that prayer, five, four, three, two, one. Stand to your feet. Remain standing. Stand to your feet. Remain standing. Remain standing. Okay, stop clapping. No, no, stay up. I can't get anybody to hear me. I want those standing to stay standing, those that are clapping to stop. 
Now, you that are standing, you either meant it or you didn't. And if you really meant it by standing, and you're not ashamed, I'm going to ask you to do something. You may say, well, this is a bit unfair. I'm not sure what to tell them because there's no room here down the front, Bruce. But I want you to go to the nearest aisle and come down, and Bruce is going to tell you what to do next. You that are standing, you in the balcony, take an extra minute, go to the nearest aisle, come down here, and Bruce has a word for you. Amen.